often do a song for the lament portion like that because songs are prayers. It might sound like a strange idea to some of you because most songs are not prayers in that traditional sense of directly addressing God. But songs are prayers still because in various ways they express human longings and desires. They, they exhale the human spirit. It's really what all good art does. It, it expresses the longings and the desires of the artists. They exhale their spirit and what they make. And in that, there's an opportunity for us to identify with what they're exhaling, what they're expressing, and then to respond to it and to incorporate that into our interaction with God. So that song, Don't Let Me Down, is a prayer of lament because there's this longing for companionship, for real relationship, covenant relationship where you're not going to be let down. And yet there's this lack of confidence, right, that that companionship will actually last, that it's going to stay the distance. It's this question, how do I know you'll be there when I need you the most? How do I know you're not going to leave me? How do I know that this is real and that this is going to last? And at the end of the day, I think that is the biggest most fundamental question in this journey of discerning fake belief from real belief. This question of how do I know any of this is real? How can I put my confidence in this? How do I know that God is real? How do I know that my faith is real? How do I know that eternal life is real? How do I know that Christ and his love for me and his spirit in me are real. And this is not just an intellectual question. When we say, how can I know that this is real? That's a, that's a gut-level, existential feeling kind of thing. Like, do I know in an intimate, personal, gut-level way that this is real? And so that question, how can I know that this is real, that should, that should move you in some way. And it could be that it moves you to feeling overwhelmed. Like, well, I don't, I don't know. How can I know? Uh, maybe it unsettles you. Maybe it excites you. Maybe it motivates you. But tap, tap into that wherever you are as we lean into this this morning because I think this is a really important question. And no matter where you are in your journey of faith, I think God wants to say something to you this morning through this exploration of, of realness and fake belief and real belief. My daughters are at the age where they're asking if anything is real, all the things that you can ask about. And we were in the car just the other day, and they just went for the whole kit and caboodle. Kit and caboodle. They're like, is the Easter Bunny real? Is the fairy, the tooth fairy real? Is Santa Claus real? Is Narnia real? Is Superman real? And they just went through all these things. And um, I know parents have different perspectives on how to interact with their kids on those things. We, we've tried to keep those myths alive for as long as possible. And, and we do that partly because I believe myth and imagination and story are really, really important. And that they train us to embrace the one true myth, as C.S. Lewis put it, the one true story that engages our imagination in the deepest way. Um, but we decided that if they ever ask us directly, that we're not going to lie to them, you know, and we're going to maybe ask them questions in response and kind of tease some things out. So we're, we're in that fun stage right now. Uh, but then I had a question back to them after discussing this for a while, and I said, is God real? And they immediately and confidently, 
the same time, yes, God is real. So, well, how do you know that God is real? And again, almost immediately, together, confidently, they said, I just do. I just do. And there's something really beautiful about that simple, confident trust, right? But I guess approach from another angle that's also naive, in a sense, I just do. And part of John's passion in writing this first letter to the churches was to give believers, followers of Jesus, more confidence, more reasons beyond just, I just do. Even though that, that's beautiful and that's really where, where we get at the end of this journey of exploring this, there are deep reasons and, and a robust answer to those questions. And as we go more toward the end of this letter in chapters 4 and 5, this is really the burden of what John is writing about toward the end of the letter. And really, it's why he's writing the whole letter. If you look at this purpose statement in chapter 5, he's saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I don't want you to to, to remain unconfident about this. I don't want you to, to remain in, in a place of doubt over this. I want you to know, again, at that gut level, that this is true. So everything that John wrote about, about a real gospel and real fellowship and real sin and real truth and real love and real spirits, all these things that we've been wrestling with, all of that is meant to generate this real confidence, a real personal confidence in what is true about God and our faith. How do we know that God won't let us down? How do we know that God will be there in that ultimate sense? How do we know that all of this is real? That's what he's going for. So chapters 4 and 5, like I said, are revolving around this question. I'd like to zero in in particular on chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Read that and, and unpack that together. So if you would, if you're able, I'd love you to stand as I read this passage. Spirit says to us through John, This is how we know that we live in Him and He in us. He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and we rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has nothing to do with punishment. Fear has to do with punishment, but the one who fears is not made perfect in love. This is the word of God to us this morning. Thanks be to God. You can I have a seat? All right, five things that John presents to us. Five reasons why we can have confidence, real confidence, that God is real, our faith is real, eternal life are real. So that's what we're going to be working through. The first one that we see is in verse 13, this basic statement, God has given us his spirit, which of course begs the other question, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) 
What does that feel like? What is that, what is that all about? That God, how do we know that God has given you His Spirit? And there's lots of biblical teaching on this. I'm going to summarize it very quickly. But basically, we can point to both internal signs and external signs of the Spirit. So in some passages, like Romans 8, 16, focuses on the internal side. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In other words, when we believe in Jesus, we have this internal sense of God's presence, a sense of peace, a sense of filling, a sense of equipping, a sense of new identity that the Scriptures say is a result of being united to Christ and receiving His Spirit. So there's this internal testimony of the Spirit, and then externally, the New Testament authors talk about the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of of the Spirit. So the, the gifts of the Spirit are those different abilities and traits that enable us to be a part of Christ's body, to build up the church uh, and to play our part. So Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 12, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So if you have believed and have received the Spirit, you automatically receive a gift from the Spirit. There is a way that the Spirit has gifted you to build up the church and to glorify God. And if you look at the lists of of gifts that were emerging in the New Testament first century church, there's things like teaching and prophecy and administration and healing and encouragement. So one of the most, I think one of the most exciting things about becoming a Christian is you get to discover how the Spirit has gifted you. And that gift then is, is motivating for you to play your part in the body. And if that's a, if that's a new idea for you, there's some, some simple, quick little assessments you can do to say, okay, I wonder what my gift is, and, and answer some questions to, to discern that, and then you can take that and talk to a pastor or someone about it. But um, I believe we have one of these on our website. This is off the cuff. <laughs> I think it's... Um, under the action tab on our website, and then on Sundays. I believe there's a link in there to a spiritual gift inventory. It's a really cool thing to do, to say, okay, this is how God's wired me. These are the gifts that God has given me, and so here's how I can play my part. And we would love you to discover that, let us know, and make that a part of what it means to, to be the, the body of Christ and his community together. Uh, j- just a little sidebar here on gifts. Um, often people have lots of questions about the so-called charismatic gifts, gifts like healing, tongues, interpreting tongues, prophecy, and the like. Um, there's a lot to say in that, but I, I thought I needed to make at least a brief comment in that I think it's clear from Scripture that those gifts exist. They still exist. They didn't cease in the New Testament era, and they exist for the edification of the church. At the same time, they are often, I believe, misused and misunderstood. So there are, there are some contexts of the, of the Big C Church where these gifts are seen as the most important gifts or even necessary gifts for everyone uh, to express. Whereas in Scripture, I believe it's, it's clear that people have all kinds of different gifts and these are not more important than the others. Um, and there's a lot to say on that. Um, if you have questions about it or if you're coming from a tradition... That might be different than that. I'd love to talk to you more or point you to another pastor who can, who can talk to you about that. 
But those are the gifts of the Spirit. That's one external sign that the Spirit is in you and among us. The other is the fruits of the Spirit. And this is what everyone has in common who's received the Spirit. And the essence of this fruit or evidence that we have the Spirit is love. Love being the essence of who God is, the essence of who Jesus is. And love also then fleshes itself out, as, as Paul says in Galatians 5, as joy and peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Point is, if you've received the Spirit, these qualities will be increasingly evident in your life. So just to summarize so far, we're still on point number one of how we know uh, that we have real faith. But it's about the Spirit. It's about the Spirit testifying within us to our spirit internally that we are His, that we are God's children. And externally, we see a gift fleshing itself out. We see fruits fleshing themselves out in our lives. All right, the second way we know that our faith and our life in God is real is because of the Bible, because of eyewitness testimony that's recorded in the Bible about Jesus. So verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. This is really awesome because this is John testifying the fact that he's been with Jesus along with many others. He has seen Jesus at work. He has seen Jesus at His baptism as He's doing miracles, as He's teaching in incredible ways. He has seen Jesus praying. He has been with Him. He has then seen Jesus dying. And most importantly, He saw Jesus alive. He's testified to these things along with hundreds of others, and he's passed them on because this is the most exciting news to share. And then eventually, John, along with others, wrote it down, and the Spirit inspired them to write it down. And that's pretty incredible that we have that today. It's, it's in our Bible. And, but, but then that raises the question, but yeah, but how do we really know that the Bible is real? And see, this is, a thick, this is a thick thing, right, to wrestle with. And that's a huge an important question. But just one thing I want you to consider this morning are those four biographies of Jesus that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, So these ancient biographies of Jesus, they have all the marks of a Greco-Roman biography. Uh, They are similar enough that they fit together beautifully. It's like, all right, they're telling the same story, and yet they're, they're definitely taking on the characteristics of the author. They're different enough to show that people really saw these things and were noticing different things, and so summarizing things in different ways. And there, there's a, a lot of research out there on the nature of these gospels, these biographies in the New Testament, but the gist is that this literature has all the signs of genuine, authentic, reliable eyewitness accounts. I think that's really incredible and really significant. And to connect it maybe a little bit more to home, I want to give you an example This may or may not be true. So imagine four people witnessed an epic ping-pong game match between two warehouse staff members named Wes Vanderlucht and Mike Laurie. And let's say for kicks that the four witnesses were Kelly, Steve, Nate, and Bob. And Mike was uh, favored to win as the reigning staff ping-pong champion. Um, But as a result of surprising dexterity and cat-like reflexes, Wes defeated Mike and usurped his title of reigning staff ping pong champion. 
This was such good news for the observers (laughs) who love a classic upset story that they all decided to write down their accounts of that match, which were later given the appropriate titles, the Gospel of Kelly, the Gospel of Steve, the Gospel of Nate, the Gospel of Bob. Gospel just means good news, right? So these are good news accounts. And these accounts were similar in lots of really cool ways because they all saw the same match, right? So they're telling the same story. But they also took these unique perspectives. So Kelly is including some humorous details about the moment Mike started sweating. And Steve is including these beautiful details about the sound of the volleys and the really unique language emitted by each competitor. And (laughs) Nate includes these details about the rightness of this match and how the arc of the universe bends toward justice. (laughs) And... Bob has these really odd details about the cost of each ping pong ball that was crushed. And there were a lot of them that were crushed. And he had that tallied. Point being, it's the same story, and it has these unique perspectives. So when you read all four accounts, there's some things that are really going to stand out, and you're going to be left with no doubt this really happened. And the results were unexpected and wonderful. And people were committed to making a record because it was so wonderful. Okay, very similar to what's going on in our Bibles. I, I realize it's a, it's a trivial example, but maybe you've never considered that before. I hope it strikes you. Because the fact that we have one story from four complementary accounts is unheard of in the, in the ancient world. And we have it. And it's authentic. And it's reliable. And that's really important because it's not a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. It's, it's real. This really happened. And it's one way, then, that we can know that Jesus is the Son of God, and He is your Savior, and He's the Savior of the world. So reason one, the Spirit. Reason two, the Bible and the eyewitness accounts we have. Reason three is in verse 15, and it's about professing your faith. It says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. That may sound real kind of strange, because I guess you could do that and not believe, but there are other statements in Scripture that emphasize a similar point, like Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Both are important. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. What's going on here? Uh, There is a sense in which the professing or the acknowledging of your faith completes your faith, completes this act of faith, that if it remains internal, it's not real yet uh, before you express it. And I think C.S. Lewis has some really wise words on this in his reflections on the Psalms, so this will help us get at it. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. I give some examples. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because people you're with care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. 
to hear a, a good joke and find no one to share it with. I love that because it's, it's like whether, whether it's telling a joke or articulating the beauty of the landscape or sharing a compelling idea or expressing your love or professing your faith, the verbalizing of your experience completes the experience, verifies the experience, testifies to others and to yourself, this is real. And sometimes that takes guts to do that, to do that with others who might challenge you, to do that publicly. Uh, There were risks to doing this, both in the first century context and, I think, in our context Different kind of, kinds of risks, because in the first century, professing your faith where other people could hear it may have meant persecution, even death. Definitely meant social isolation. Definitely meant economic impact. So being a Christian, professing that you are a follower of Christ, had a cost. It was risky. Had political and cultural and economic conflict with the powers that be. And so there was, there was this real cost to professing your faith. And to some extent, that's true today. But I think in our context, there's, there's maybe a less tangible cost like that. Um, but it, it's still, it's true that there's a general sense in our culture that religion should be private. That to make a public acknowledgement or profession is like uncomfortable and exclusive and whatever, um, offensive. So if anything, I think professing our faith today, the risk that it presents to us is uh, risk to our reputation, uh, even risks to our relationships. But taking that risk, being willing to do that with your friends, with coworkers, with others, to be overt about that is uh, one way that God works to confirm that what you believe is real. I was meeting with a seven-year-old boy last Sunday who wants to be baptized at Warehouse. I love those meetings. <laughs> um, and we were talking about what, is it, what does this mean? What is baptism? What does it mean to follow Jesus? He had all kinds of good questions. Uh, and then I had a question for him. I said, don't you think it's going to make you a little nervous to, to come up on a stage and talk about your faith in front of everybody? And he like straightened up his back a little. He said, well, if I love Jesus, I shouldn't be scared to tell people about it. I'm like, well, <laughs> have the stage. <laughs> I mean, leave it to a seven-year-old to lead us, right? They are brilliant at getting at the simplicity of things that we make way too complicated. Um, so that's beautiful and is a challenge, I think, to all of us. So we've, we've looked at three reasons so far. We've got the testimony of the Spirit Internally and externally, we have the testimony of Scripture, those eyewitness accounts. We have the, the, the act of professing our faith. And then the fourth, we have this real confidence that we're, that we're in relationship with God if we're living in the way of love like Jesus. Look at verse, verses 16 and 17. God is love. So whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Living in love and living like Jesus are basically synonymous to John. 
because that's the essence of God and Jesus, loving God, loving neighbors, loving enemies, loving friends, loving. As we saw a few weeks ago, love is the main theme of John's letter. It's the main theme of of his gospel, that good news that God so loved the world that he gave. So love is really the ultimate sign of real faith. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Love is the ultimate sign of real belief, and real love gives. God so loved, he gave. And he gives, and he gives, and he gives. So giving of yourself, whatever that looks like, is the essence of love. So if you want to know if your faith is real, if you want confidence, if you want to build that realness of what God is doing in your life, look for those patterns and seek to deepen those patterns of love and generosity in your life. Okay, finally, the last thing that can give us confidence is freedom from fearing God. I love how this passage ends, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. My friend Sam Wells once wrote that we approach God in fear. This is our default And that fear expresses itself primarily in two ways. We are either afraid that God's not going to be enough for me, or we're afraid that God is going to be too much for me. So either God's not going to provide in some way, he's not going to be enough, I think that connects to our lament today, or God's going to destroy me, to put it bluntly. Those are the two to do basic fears. And friends, that is why the message of the gospel is so amazing. Because in Jesus, we see in his life, death, and resurrection for us, we see that God will always be enough for us, no matter what, now and forever. And he allowed himself to be destroyed for us. So we don't need to fear that anymore either. So all of our our basic reasons for fearing God are wiped away in the gospel. And we are given peace. We are given joy. Paul writes in Romans 8, 15, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, your adoption as God's children, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. We have this intimate relationship with the God of the universe who is all love to us in Christ, and it banishes fear, and it introduces joy. And, and that's why the natural thing, to go back to C.S. Lewis's wisdom about praise, is that when we are loved and when we enjoy a relationship of love, the most natural thing and its completion is to praise, to, to sing our hearts out. And, and that's why on a Sunday morning we have so much singing, because this is the most natural human way to express our joy and our, our gratitude and our love. So we start our worship services that way, we end them that way, and I think it's fitting. One of the songs we started with today, No Longer a Slave, is right from that passage Romans 8.15, which connects into John, beautifully expresses this reality of freedom from fear. So what I want to do to close out the day and 
we'll be singing in a little bit, is to just use the lyrics from No Longer a Slave as a prayer. So I think they beautifully express this real confidence we have that God is love, he is for us, it's right here, and fear is banished. So why don't you pray with me? Abba, Father, Son, and Spirit, you unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone. I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I am your child. From my mother's womb, you've chosen me. Love has called my name. I've been born again into your family. Your blood flows through my veins. I am surrounded by the arms of the Father. I am surrounded by songs of deliverance. We've been liberated from our bondage. We're the sons and the daughters. Let us sing our freedom. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. All my fears were drowned in perfect love. You rescued me so that I could stand and sing. I am a child of God. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your grace, for your love, for adopting us, for making us your beloved children. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Warehouse 242 podcast. If you have any questions or want to find out more about Warehouse, visit warehouse242.org. Come join us on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 2307 Wilkinson Boulevard in Charlotte. Thanks for listening.